Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Inner City Muslim Action Network, known by its acronym IMAN, calls itself a community organization that fosters health, wellness, and healing in the inner city by organizing for social change, cultivating the arts, and operating a holistic health center. They're headquartered in Marquette Park on the south side. And in 2017, the MacArthur Foundation recognized Iman co-founder and executive director Rami Nashashibi for confronting the challenges of poverty and disinvestment in urban communities through a Muslim-led civic engagement that fosters and bridges race, class, and religion. And the MacArthur Foundation made him a MacArthur Fellow. Rami took the opportunity to make Hajj, and we are going to talk with Rami about that experience and how it resonates with his work. Thanks for joining us, Rami Nashashibi. Thank you so much, Ro. Uh What was your experience when you got the MacArthur Fellowship and um, you, you instantly, I guess, knew that you wanted to make Hajj, right? Then <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's an overwhelming experience, I think, for most fellows that get typically a phone call notifying them that they have been selected to be a part of this, you know, extraordinary group of people. In my case, partly because we had been working with the foundation on some issues related to criminal justice reform and police accountability, and because we're located here in Chicago, uh, they elected not to give me the phone call. They actually brought me into their offices and uh, surprised me, really. Um, And initially, I was very confused about why I'm there. I thought initially it was, a, it was a, just a meeting with one program officer, but I was led into a room with around eight individuals, including Julia Stash, the CEO. And um, at that point, Julia said something along the lines of, um, we've brought you here under false pretenses, and then notified me that I was a recipient of this, uh, you know, again, this incredible uh, honor. And yes, the first thing uh, among these kind of flutter of very surreal thoughts uh, that I was able to think about was I will make this spiritual pilgrimage, this hajj, which is something that all Muslims aspire to do once in their life as the ultimate form of gratitude really in my mind. Um, and now I had the economic means to be able to do so. And, and so I made the commitment right then and there. Did you think, well, this is um, almost a culminating aspect of my work. It it is connected to everything you're doing. Well, you know, in some very real ways it was, including the fact that um, this year uh, I knew from the very beginning that I would make Hajj with a group called Hajj Pros run out of Atlanta, um, and they gather people from across the country. It's probably the largest black American-led Hajj in the country, and uh, in many in many cases, there were individuals who um, were associated with the first such gathering almost forty years ago, led by the son of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad by the name of Imam Muhyiddin Muhammad, who's uh, passed ten years ago, and in many ways was the type of spiritual leader that touched me very greatly, and um, so. Not only was I able to commit to the pilgrimage, I knew from the get-go that I would be going with this extraordinary group of individuals of all ages, but many of them were pioneers, uh, seniors who kind of uh, come out of this extraordinary experience. 
And they were the Hodge pros. <laughs> they were the Hodge pros, yeah. I, um, some people do this repeatedly. I, I noticed you shared a cot with somebody who is doing it every year. Yeah, and, and you know, this is a guy out of Oakland, and that's what was so extraordinary about this group. You, you know, he didn't carry himself as a big religious scholar or a sheikh or imam, just an average guy out of Oakland, um, but, you know, was there. His name is Anthony Muhammad, was there on his 38th consecutive Hajj. Uh, probably the, the, that beats all records I think I've ever heard of. And um, for the last 15 years, Anthony has been making it on behalf of seniors, uh, primarily coming out of the Imam Muhammad's community who are too sick to do it on their, uh, on their own and has, in fact, been paying for each of these Hajjs by himself. Um, so, yeah, there are people who've gone multiple times. It was my first experience. How did this resonate with people in your community? Did your organization, were people excited for you? What, what, what yeah, you know, um, and, and there are some you know, beautiful people who actually gathered and, and uh, you know, had a pre-Hajj uh, moment. This is a special time in the larger community when someone both leaves to Hajj and comes back in various communities across the globe, have various traditions. And so uh, several people gathered at Iman, um, including people, again, out of this larger experience who went with this group before, who kind of uh, gathered. And each of them, you know, and we have a multi-faith kind of staff and community, but everyone uh, provided me with a book and each of them had very special prayers or things they wanted me to pray for on their behalf while I was there. And so it was a very special and very intimate moment with uh, people that I you know, work with every day. Is there an expectation that something amazing is going to happen when you do this that, that um, almost makes it impossible for something amazing to happen? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I, and I think you know, I thought I was alone in that reflection um, that I've written and I think shared uh, share shortly um, that, yes, this is life transforming. And, you know, for those of us who have been reared, if you will, as Muslims in America, perhaps the most um, legendary hajj that we know of uh, is that of uh, because it was so popularly circulated in his autobiography was the, the Hajj of Malcolm X, Malika Shabazz. And of course, in the story of Malcolm, Hajj is extraordinarily transformative. It is a moment in which, you know, a much more global sensibility about what it means to, lar- to belong to a larger uh, community and conversations and issues of race took on a much broader context at that point for him. And yes, um, it is supposed to be very transformative. And and yes, it does kind of build up some significant expectations, you know. And the first question you get when you come back is, has your life changed? <laughs> and did, did, and did, did it change? You know, I'm still processing a lot of the, uh, the lessons of Hajj, you know. And in my case, I had um, an extraordinary just this phenomenal opportunity to both go to Mecca with this extraordinary group of people uh, and then Medina and then Jerusalem. And so this was kind of, I was in the three holiest sites of the Muslim tradition and certainly with Jerusalem, the holiest site of kind of intersectional traditions within the Jewish and Christian uh, faith as well. And I had some very transformative experiences I think that will be with me for the rest of my life um, how that has shaped me, uh, I think I'm still, you know, wrestling with a little bit. I imagine just being with 
that many people, and I, it, there's a couple million people there making hash at the same time from all over the planet. I mean, you get in touch with a, a version of humanity that you've never seen before. Yeah, I mean, look, the unofficial number is 2.3 million people that were there this year, and and the probably real number was several, you know, hundred thousand more because of all of the people who simply come by way of other means, but. Nothing I read, nothing I watched, no conversation I had uh, in preparation for Hajj prepared me for what it physically feels like to be moving with that many people. Um, you're especially among the men. You're really, you know, stripped down to two towels, um, and you're, you know, in this extraordinary collective and personal experience together and. Uh, you know, in the case of the Hajj, it's just you're reminded at that moment that this is the largest and oldest gathering of its kind. I mean, it is probably the largest and oldest gathering of black and brown people on the planet. Uh, while, of course, there are people who are coming from Europe and the United States. In our modern context, this is primarily you're engaging with the global south here. Uh, and that in of itself, I think, is a really intense part of the experience because in my case, you know, the moments that really touch me the most about being with that many people, and in some cases you're sleeping out in the open with that many people in places and you're walking in these thick crowds, you're physically intimate, you know, shoulder to shoulder, even the quote unquote gender lines of segregation that we typically associate with more traditional Muslim societies all break down when you are in this kind of sea of people. You're praying alongside women, in front of women, women are praying alongside men. They're just, everyone is everywhere. You're shoulder to shoulder. And, um, there is something really extraordinary in that. And in my case, perhaps some of the most moving moments have been when I saw these, these ph phenomenal acts of humanity among, you know, an, an older Nigerian brother helping up a Kashmiri sister or a Kashmiri man or a young person from Indonesia working alongside someone from Egypt or Algeria and giving them a bottle of water in the middle of the heat. You know, bear in mind, we were in 115 degree heat. Uh, and so watching that, observing that, particularly among a group of people who often get castigated as the other, or at one point still wrestling with the colonial implications of being less than civilized, if you will, uh, seeing their extraordinary acts of humanity was very touching for me, actually. I'm talking with Rami Nashashibi. He is the executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network, and we're talking about his experience with Hajj. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking today with Rami Nashashibi. He's co-founder and executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network. He recently made Hajj, and we've been talking about the experience. Um, you have, uh, you've written about the experience, and we're going to hear a section of what you've written. Um, set it up a little bit for us. Well, you know, in, in reference to that earlier question, how has your life changed? Um, I tried, because I was getting it often from different groups of people, I tried to actually 
you know, write somewhat of a poet, poetic reflection uh, to speak to some of that. And uh, the piece essentially begins with, you know, I touched what he touched and I speak about the very physical aspects of the Hajj, its rituals, being proximate to the things that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and Jesus and Maryam and uh, Abraham were proximate to both in Mecca, Medina as part of the Hajj and then Jerusalem as part of my kind of last trip where last place I, I went to. Um, and in each of those locations, especially when I'm talking about Mecca and all of the places, the rituals for the Hajj, um, I talk about you know, the extraordinary physical proximity I was rushing to have, like many pilgrims, to be close to things, but not necessarily getting the feeling necessarily I was looking for until this one moment, this one incident uh, that I reflect on with the piece. And there's a Kaaba in the center, and this is when people try to get to it in, this in, is, that, in, that, in that swirl of uh, people that people only see. In the, yeah, if anyone probably is associated any image with the Hajj, it is this, again, extraordinary sea of humanity circling, uh, encircling this black cube structure called the Kaaba, which is believed to build, have been built by Abraham and his son as this first, if you will, testimony to the oneness of God, a sanctuary, a home, a house that we all uh, point to in symbolism of the oneness of our creation and the oneness of our kind of humanity. Uh, it's where Muslims uh, still pray right towards too. today. Yeah. And this is all happening. Your your piece is right there in uh, this last <laughs> in moment here. So I can uh, I know the the larger piece will be posted on on your website uh, later today. But I'll read uh, the closing, if you will. Back by the throbbing rhythm of the crowds crushing themselves upon the black cube. In my rush to lunge upon an open space, my elbow knocked the chin of an elderly Afghan man. In my attempt to express my apology and acknowledge his anger, I extended my right hand and brought my thumb, middle, and index fingers together over the crisp edges of his beard, a gesture intended to express love and affection. He violently waved off my hand with his wrist. Don't touch my face again, he gestured. We stood looking at each other amid a raging sea of millions in the shadows of that ancient structure. I tried one last time to communicate what I intended. I moved an inch closer and this time repeated the same gesture over my own chin, bowed my head, and placed my right hand over my heart before extending it outwardly to him. Forgive me, I try to say. He stared back intensely, repeated the gesture, and suddenly seemed overwhelmed by the realization of what I was communicating and hugged me like his son. Kissing my cheek, he began weeping uncontrollably, falling upon the cube as if in mourning. I fell alongside him, weeping tears for every broken relationship I have endured or caused over the years, for every failure to communicate, for every miserable ounce of pain I unwittingly caused others and myself. I wept in love and in gratitude for the ability to see it come back together. 
Like the shattered shards of stone, we too once hailed from a larger composite, a more refined whole. Perhaps we touched what they touched, walked where they walked, sat where they sat, so we too can be prophetic vessels, healing the rupture of the broken human family. And maybe then we will know God and break, dislodge, and once and for all remove the calcifying boulders from our decaying chests. O holy lands, O hands with holes, hold these hands and take us home. Rami Nashashibi reflecting on his experience at Hajj. We'll have the full reflection on our website at wbez.org slash worldview. It comes down to human interaction, right? You're, you, you have your fullest experience with um, almost in a random way with someone. Another human being, which on some level really is, I think, one of the larger meta lessons that uh, the whole Hajj is about. It is about, you know, turning back towards a greater meaning, a greater purpose, what unites us, what connects us. And sometimes I think in that moment, uh, like many moments, um, maybe rituals, uh, as beautiful as they may be, uh, beliefs and and, uh, in all our religious traditions, sometimes actually can both help and get in the way of the larger spiritual human project. Um, And I think that's part of the reflection I was getting at there. You, after you left the Hajj, you went to Jerusalem, and your family has a long history in Jerusalem. And what was that experience like? You went with um, a lot of African Americans, and you introduced them to black Palestinians. Yeah. Well, you know, again, this this larger group of uh, individuals that I went to Hajj with were extraordinary. They included people like, you know, Mariam Ali, the eldest daughter of uh, Muhammad Ali, and activists and organizers, and then a smaller group of them, 20, uh, and I then went to Jerusalem as our kind of, as we were in transit to Amman. And, uh, you know, while they were there, I had, uh, my family is very deeply rooted in Jerusalem, going back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, to the time of Salahuddin Ayyubi, actually, Saladin, as he's known in English. And I've become very close with the kind of the larger African-Palestinian community. And I felt like it was really important for these communities to get to know one another and check in. So uh, one night right outside of the mosque, Aqsa Mosque, they arranged for a dinner and graciously hosted them. And it was just a beautiful conversation uh, about um, the similarities and distinctions between the larger struggles of black folks in America and quite frankly, the broader struggles of many Palestinians in a city like Jerusalem, um, which is... You know, I like to say beyond the political discourse uh, of Jerusalem, a, a kind of an easier way for, you know, people, irrespective of what their tradition is, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, to understand at least what many Palestinians and Arabs are undergoing, whether they're Christian or Muslim. I say it's kind of like gentrification on steroids with Uzi some machine guns. And in many ways, Palestinians are under an extraordinary economic hardship in that city and struggling. Um, and that was a struggle that many black Americans could really identify with. And so there was an extraordinary conversation and moment there. There's been a lot about the connection between Black Lives Matters and Palestinians, and and this is uh, similar to that. It's It's an experience where they're connecting over shared injustice. Yeah, I think perhaps one of the most profoundly articulated um, 
connection uh, was by, you know, uh, here in Chicago by a local hip hop artist by the name of Vic Menza, who spoke about this experience on the Trevor Noah show and actually wrote about it in Time magazine. And again, you know, beyond the sometimes very partisan political discourse and uh, divisive political rhetoric, I think what gets lost is the humanity of the conditions that um, both, you know, uh, are experienced here on the south side of Chicago and certainly experienced among people who are living uh, through the consequences of a military occupation, uh, what it means, like my cousins, for instance, to live every day with the threat of possibly being evicted from their homes, living in the rubble of uh, my cousins, for example, that live in the rubble of my father's home uh, right there in Jerusalem for fear of losing that house. And, um, you know, because they don't have a permit to rebuild and because getting those type of permits are almost impossible for many Palestinian families uh, who are living in East Jerusalem right now. And so understanding the basic uh, inhumanity uh, that I think many uh, in that city have to live through every day is, is part of that larger struggle. Rami Nashashibi is co-founder and executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network, Iman, and you can find him on the south side where Iman is on 63rd Street uh, on a regular basis. Um, keep up the good work down there. We didn't get a chance to talk much about it, but uh, I'm so impressed by everything you're doing. Thank you so much, Jerome. Rami Nashashibi from the Inner City Muslim Action Network. Coming up after the break, we'll have our Puerto Reconstruction series where we talk about Puerto Rico. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Every Monday during hurricane season this year, we're bringing you conversations about Puerto Rico and its people. Today, we're going to listen to one of the island's most famous exports. In the early 70s, a historic concert in New York spread the infectious rhythms of salsa music around the world. The BBC's Simon Watts reports for the BBC program Witness. We were like the, the Hispanic Rolling Stones. It was a one-of-a-kind night. Uh, the people were hungry for music. We must have put 40-some-odd thousand people in Yankee Stadium. It's August the 23rd, 1973, and some of the most famous names in Latin music are playing at New York's home of baseball. name of the band, the Fania All-Stars. It was the largest gathering of Puerto Ricans in any venue on earth. Finally, a music came out with our culture that related to our generation. So we were super excited. In 1973, Latin music was booming in New York, and it was largely thanks to the work of a local record label called Fania Records. Fania had started nearly a decade earlier on a shoestring budget. Fania Records it was owned by Johnny Pacheco and an Italian lawyer named Jerry Masucci. He decided to start this record company with $3,000, and I was one of the first ones that appeared on the scene with him. Pianist and producer Larry Harlow was one of the creative forces behind Fania Records. 
I think I got $500 for my first album. They kept signing different young artists, and the Spanish kept migrating to New York City, so they kept buying new records, and all these little clubs kept popping up in the barrio. Everything was changing. Don't forget, the 60s were a very radical time in the history of the United States. The Puerto Ricans were looking for something to identify with, and they identified with salsa music. Puerto Rican DJ Ray Collazo was an early salsa fan. It was a new generation of Puerto Ricans, Cubans. We put our own little funk into it. We added that mixture of Latino rhythms and African-American rhythms, like the blues and the jazz. And also, um, we loved the Beatles, and we loved the Rolling Stones. So we put all of that together and made a really dynamic sound, and we call it salsa. Fania Records became the Motown of Latin music, signing top singers like Willie Colon, Hector Laveau and Cheo Feliciano, and churning out hit after hit. In the early 1970s, Fania brought together its biggest names in one huge supergroup. The Fania All-Stars' first major gig was in a New York nightclub. It led to a hit album and documentary, so manager Jerry Masucci decided to aim big and try to fill the iconic Yankee Stadium. Ray Collasso knew he had to be there and organised a trip from his home in Philadelphia. I had two busloads of uh, people coming from Philadelphia, which is 100 miles from New York City. This is before the CD and 8-tracks and all of that. We actually had a portable record player. We partied all the way down, so we were ready for it. And as you went inside, it was like a a parade, a party. First of all, I was, uh, as a child, I lived in the South Bronx, not far from Yankee Stadium, but never had the opportunity to go to Yankee Stadium. So I was excited just to, to go where, you know, the Yankees played. There were people banging drums outside. There were people playing maracas, cowbells. It was 44,000 people, and I imagine 38 to 40,000 of them were Puerto Ricans. And there were flags everywhere. They were selling flags. And then the scoreboard just saying, Viva Puerto Rico, and then everyone would yell it. It was a fiesta to behold. The two opening acts went down a storm, and then the All-Stars finally emerged. The Fania All-Stars band was probably 18, 20 musicians. Those are musical instrument musicians. There were probably 8 to 10 singers, and all of a sudden it just got hot and super hot, and the band was smoking and the brass was banging, and all of a sudden people were just fired up. To protect the Yankee Stadium grass, the Fania management had put the stage in the middle of the pitch. The Salsa fans grew more and more frustrated at being confined to the stands, unable to dance freely or see their idols. And finally, their patience snapped. 
Mongo Santa Maria was a great conga drummer, and we also had Ray Barreto signed to the label. So I wrote a song called Congo Bongo, which was a, a duel between Barreto and Mongo. In the middle of that song that I wrote, the, the people were getting very excited, and one young man jumped the fence and ran from the dugout, the back of the dugout, all the way to the stage, jumped up on the stage and started waving to the people, come on up. And 40,000 people jumped over the, over the railings and rushed the stage. So I was standing with uh, George Santana, with Jorge Santana, and we had rigged our pianos and his, gu his guitar amp with explosives and fireworks uh, But all the little kids were climbing up the light towers. Now the light towers started to sway up and back, and, I, and I'm right under it. And I'm saying, this is going to crash on our heads, George. We got to get out of here. And we finally got the song finished, you know, after a few takes. You can hear it on the, re on the audio recordings. So we put our instruments down, and we ran towards the dugout. Then I went into the recording truck, which was in back of the stage. And this is what I heard. <laughs> I said, wow, what the heck is that? I have no idea what that was. And what were they doing? The kids were stealing the microphones, and they were unplugging the microphones from two of these 25 musicians that were on the stage and stealing all the instruments and the mics, George's uh, amplifier, <laughs> and stuff like that as, as the bouncers were knocking the people off the stage. So finally, Alex Masucci, the brother of Jerry, ran up on the stage and he said, this is it. The end of the concert's over. Everybody leave because we're liable for anybody that gets hurt and stuff like that. Okay, amigos. Se acabó. Se acabó el concierto. Jerry forfeited the $25,000, you know, to fix the grass, but he got more than $25,000 worth of publicity out of it. Although the Yankee Stadium concert ended in chaos, the label salvaged enough material to make another Thania All-Stars album and film. The iconic recording was nominated for a Grammy and helped spread the salsa sound to Latin America, Africa and Europe. You know, just like anything else, with time it seems more people were there because I run into people that swear they were there. You know, just with time everyone wants to pretend they were there, but... Um, it's one of those nights that you just never forget. You still DJ today. You're on an internet Latin station. Do you still play Fania Records a lot? Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> Once an hour. <laughs> Once an hour. And that was DJ Ray Coyazo talking with the BBC's Simon Watt for the program Witness about the Fania All-Stars and their 1973 concert in Yankee Stadium. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to have some conversations about going other places. Uh, Chicago is the home to a lot more direct flights to other countries now. We're going to talk about the growing urge to get to other countries directly tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, Amber Fisher, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.